Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. If you listen to what back in the 90s they called alternative rock, that intro might sound familiar. The song is called What I Didn't Know, and it was the biggest hit for a band out of Greensboro, North Carolina called Athenaeum. The drummer for Athenaeum, Nick Brown, co-founded the band when he was in eighth grade. But a few years later, just as the band was reaching his commercial peak, he got bored with the music and he quit. He's now a creative writing professor at Clemson and the author of three novels. But for years, he's been haunted by his musical life, so much so that he was embarrassed when somebody else brought it up. So he decided to write about it. The result is a memoir called Bang Bang Crash, which arrives in bookstores on February 21st and is available for pre-order now. Nick talked with me about losing the joy of music and refining it in different ways, including one band with a wild backstory. We also talk about finding the beauty in a pop song loving your old bandmates, and in his case, what a life in music does to your teeth. Here's our conversation. You started drum lessons when you were eight. I was wondering how you ended up playing drums in the first place rather than piano or guitar or whatever. Yeah, well, it's hard for me to remember much, you know, before that part musically, but I'm told that I was into the drums. You know, my mom... Got me a toy drum set. She jokes that I like to bang on the pots and pans. I mean, honestly, I feel like most young boys would enjoy banging on pots and pans. But for some reason, she was compelled to seek out drum lessons for me. Um, she thought I was interested. And she does. I, You know, I was a close listener of music. Do you have any particular musical memories from back then? And I'm wondering specifically whether you remember a point when you figured out that like people play music and there are these things that are bands and you could be in one. It didn't happen before I started taking drum lessons. You know, when I started taking drum lessons, the world of music and bands was still completely mysterious, you know, as was most of the world to me at age eight. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I do remember, you know, there was a tape that had like, uh, I was really into little Richard and the big bopper, <laughs> you know, I had just some random tapes that I got totally obsessed with and really beguiled by. For me, the dream of a band was the band I was in with my middle school, you know, friends. Um, so it was very tangible it was part of my life really and not it didn't you know I, I was into the Beatles I would dream about the Beatles as a band but the dream of being in a band was sort of always true I want to talk about that you talk about a recurring dream where Ringo is sick and so you're at the Beatles concert and they call you up on stage to play and you kind of know what you're doing uh, what I'm curious about is when you daydreamed about that stuff did you daydream like when you could add a little more control over what you were imagining? Did you imagine being in particular bands or just being on stage? Do you remember that sort of thing? Oh, hell yes. I mean, I would sit in my mom's attic with my headphones on 
you know, there was nothing better than putting on a Beatles record or a Led Zeppelin record. Uh, that's a great way to learn how to play. And it's a great way to burn off, you know, hours on end. But it was just what you're getting at. It was living the daydream. You know, it was like acting out the part and it was wildly satisfying. And uh, like I said, I mean, a great way to learn how to play. I didn't, you know, most players do that. Um, but yeah, man, they definitely went through the day as well. And it was while I was playing along. Did you feel like, or do you feel like you were sort of unnatural for the drums? I mean, I know, obviously you took years of lessons. You worked really, really hard at it. Did you also feel like you had some kind of natural gift for rhythm? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, obviously I studied with a great teacher for a long time. You know, as with any artist in any form, you sort of have your your stylistic imprint, you know? And I think I had mine pretty early the way I play. It's useful the way I play to play with other people. And I don't know how to explain that. I, you know, I don't overplay a lot. I'm not drawn to, I like to sit within a song and that type of inclination works well for working with other musicians, which is a benefit when you're a drummer. You know, I was never drawn to be the solo musical, you know, star or to be, you know, the, the front person musically. This thing happened that so many other people dream of happening. You and your buddy are in eighth grade in Greensboro, start playing together. And from what point from there, from that day when you two started playing, how far, how much time passed before you guys got signed? Okay, so from the day in eighth grade when I met Mark Cano and we played Hotel California, my friend Ken's Playroom, to when we signed a, a record deal, I would say it was right when I graduated from high school, so five, six years, um, which, you know, I mean, it's actually, a, that's a long time to be in a band. We were young. Man, we spent a lot of those years playing music all the time together. There were labels, you know, we had people coming in to see us and stuff. Now, I was the youngest. Mark Cano, who's the singer of that band, Athenaeum, that was my high school band, he was um, two or three years older than me. And so, uh, you know, I was I was the young guy. I want to talk about Athenaeum. Uh, I know it has several different definitions and stuff, but your mom came up with that name, right? Yeah, yeah, it was her suggestion. My dad, my parents grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and he was in, the high schools there had these clubs that they called literary, you know, clubs, which I think were really just, you know, high school kids getting together to party. Yeah. But his literary club was called the Athenaeum, which is, um, you know, one of the definitions is, is Greek for library. So uh, she thought it was a cool name. I thought it was cool because there was another high school band in town called Dionysus, which I thought they were the coolest. So, you know, Athenaeum, I thought, oh, man, that's sort of like Dionysus. Of course, nobody could say or spell the name once we <laughs> named it. It was just a nightmare. Oh, pulling up to the theaters and seeing the ways they'd misspelled the names on marquees. There was one that's legendary with us that said Anthem Mayhem. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we asked for it. But yeah, Athenaeum was my mom's suggestion, and we took it. So in this book, she comes off as kind of a cool mom. She comes up with the band's name. She takes you to drum lessons when you're eight, all this sort of thing. There comes a point uh, later on when you decide um, not to take these acceptances that you've been given 
to a couple of Ivy League schools and several other colleges, and instead you decide to, you know, move into a house with your bandmates and go on the road and that sort of thing. And it's not clear to me from the book how she took that. Oh, she was totally fine with it. Really? Yeah. There was no there was no pressure at all. Part of what I was getting at um, in the book when I was writing about that period too is, you know, looking back now, you think oh, there's an 18-year-old who's just been accepted to Princeton or Columbia. And not only does he say no to those schools, like he doesn't go at all. You know, like from our perspective, it seems crazy. But at the time, it really didn't seem crazy. It, it seemed to make perfect sense because of the attention that the band was getting, you know, from really all over the country, from major record labels and stuff. No, my mom and my dad, you know, no, but there was no pressure from the family, it was just everyone else who thought, what is he thinking? <laughs> I think the neighbors and parents of classmates just thought I had, you know, thrown away all potential. Well, a big theme of this book is this, you know, when you kind of start out with it, this idea that for the longest time, now that this band has been in your rearview mirror for a while, that you're kind of embarrassed about this musical career that you had. That when people talk about it at parties, somebody will mention it to strangers. You're like looking the other way. You don't want to talk about it. Do you feel like part of why you did this book was to try to maybe give people the explanation in the form of a book? You could just say, read the book or also sort of explain that embarrassment to yourself. Absolutely. Both. You know, <clears throat> as a writer, I've found that if there's something that feels weird, is something that feels uncomfortable, it's usually something good to write about and explore. That part of my past, you know, did make me feel uncomfortable. And so, yes, it was a way for me to explore that. And also, you know, it's hard for me to explain that to other people. And so, as you pointed out, yeah, the book is sort of like a way to explain it to people and to, to those people who were involved in that part of my life. Yeah, at one point in the book, you say, I want to make sure I have this right. What happens when you discover that you're a grown man living out the dreams of a boy? And it occurs to me that you also sort of did the reverse. You were a boy, you were a high school kid, sort of living out the dreams that a lot of grown men would have loved to have. And I, the first thing I want to ask about that is, do you feel like that would have been different for you or that experience would have been different if you hadn't been quite so young when it happened? Yes, absolutely. Um, How so? Because um, my artistic uh, tastes changed. And when you're in a band with your best friends, that's the most exciting thing in the world. There's nothing better, you know? But when you're in a band with your best friends in the world and you're not into that music anymore, that's a real different situation. And so my musical tastes from when I even when I was 20, were wildly different than in eighth grade, at which I think most people can say. But what happens when the band you formed in eighth grade is the band that you're, you know, still performing with? And that's not to say that, you know, I'm embarrassed of the music that I was playing. It has absolute integrity, you know. Um, but it just, what I was invested in artistically, I couldn't help where my attention was going. I wonder if another reason that you've been uncomfortable talking about this is because if you described that feeling, 
there would be people who would go, dude, are you crazy? You were in a band. They, you had, you know, you guys were doing well. And then you just kind of walked away from it. Did you feel like you were, you didn't want to explain that part of it maybe? Yes, <clears throat> there's that. And then there's the other part where if somebody says like, oh, Nick was in a band. Oh, really? What band were you in? And then there's the whole thing where, you know, to me is a huge part of my life of which I am proud, even though it's complicated. Their faces just blank and they say, oh, well, I don't know. OK, well, they've never heard of any of them. And then like, then what do you do? You know, I'm not going to explain, oh, we were a big deal. You know, it's this whole tailspin. You know, maybe they just think I've played in some cover bands. Fine. There's nothing wrong with cover bands. But you see what I mean? It's like to know how to present this part of my past so that I can be on the same playing field with somebody else to have that conversation about my feelings about my past. So it does feel like you guys were in sort of a, a weird slot to try to explain that, you know, you weren't just playing bars in your, you know, hometown. You weren't the Foo Fighters either, but you were in between. You opened for the Foo Fighters. And so you're in that slot where there's a decent chance that people would know you or at least know the music, but there's also a decent chance people would have never heard of you. So that does feel like a particularly awkward place. Like Bono's never going to have that issue. Right, right. There is uh, another side to that, which I think about a lot, which is that we really had the perfect amount of success. You know, I mean, we had a big record deal with Atlantic Records. We had a hit song. And it wasn't so big that we were stuck in it. I have a lot of friends who were a little bit more successful than us that I think maybe it would be harder for them to do what I did, which was just move on to the next thing in life. You know, there's a way to look back on it and think like, oh, man, that was perfect. And also it was a little bit, you know, pre-internet. So it's just sort of like, poof, it's in a way it's just gone, you know, but we did it for real and we got to do it together. And that part of it was magical. Have you had many moments over these last 20 years or so where, you know, I, people talk about hearing your song on the radio, and I know that happened to you some back when it happened, but since then, you ever, like, run into anybody wearing a T-shirt or or you see something somewhere that's sort of a, not a trigger, that's the wrong word for it, but it sort of, you know, reminds you that other people are out there listening to that music? Well, <clears throat> I live in clemson south carolina now and i'm married and have a daughter and uh, i go to sleep at 9 30. you know i'm not living the rock and roll <laughs> lifestyle right now but uh my wife was dropping my daughter off at school one morning in the drop-off line at clemson elementary and the vice principal stuck his head in the window and said um this might be a strange question my wife said okay he said is your husband in the band Athenium? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like a super fan. And of course, my daughter, well, I'm sure it was just blushing. My wife came home and told me, super nice guy, but that was a little strange. Every time that I would go to an elementary school function, the vice principal would want to come up and talk about Athenium. He was a drummer too. He knew all my parts and knew a lot about the music, really. I've seen you mention on social media as this book was coming out that you went back and looked at old YouTube videos and that sort of thing. What does that feel like? It is a little more incredible to me what happened with us, just that we did this thing and, you know, we're on MTV and had people interested in 
in the band. I mean, there's still bands, especially in the Philippines. We had a big hit in the Philippines. There are a lot of Filipino bands that are always posting YouTube clips of their bands playing covers of our, you know, songs. And, you know, that sort of thing, I guess with a little bit of time, you do get more perspective just on how amazing it is to have been a part of that. It does feel like something that is outside of me. When we come back, Nick Brown talks about the favorite band he's ever been in and how the legend of that band almost got out of control. At our first show, this guy came up to me and he just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, uh, Nick, man, I just, want, I just want to tell you, I think what you guys are doing is, is beautiful. And I said, well, what do you mean? You know, we hadn't even played yet. He hadn't heard us. And he said, about those songs, man, about that, about that kid. And I just realized, oh my God, he thinks it's true. That and more ahead on South Mound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Nick Brown. I think you do a really good job of this in the book, but I want to try to get you to do it a little bit here. To the best you can, describe that feeling that you eventually had when you're on stage, you're playing for crowds, you're a successful band, but you just weren't feeling it anymore. Well, it's not a good feeling, you know? I did get to that point, you know, it was just, I wasn't into that scene or that music anymore. And it made me feel weird about the crowds that were coming to see us. And that's a hard thing to admit, but I remember looking out at crowds and just thinking like, if you guys want to come be a part of this band that I'm not even into anymore, like, I don't even, like, what am I doing in this room? You know, it was, I lost a lot of generosity for other people because of a weird situation. I played that reunion show with that band, and the, you know we're talking about Athenaeum. Um, we played a reunion show for the 20th anniversary of our album coming out. And uh, I recognized so many people in the crowd, you know, people whose names I didn't even know, people I'd seen so many times. And I was really worried about seeing that crowd again. And what I didn't realize is like, they all had aged 20 years too. I just love those guys I was playing music with. And that's tough, you know, when you realize like, this isn't really working for me anymore. I, you know, I, I write in the book that it's a little bit like if you're in love with something or you've been in a relationship and you feel it sort of falling apart and you're striving to sort of keep it together, even though, you know, it's a little bit doomed that that's sort of how it felt. Except I was just on stage in front of like 10,000 people at the same time. When you talk in the book about, basically going to the band and saying, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. 
your buddy Mark, the guy that you formed the band with, you quote him in the book as saying, you know, wishing you well and saying, this is what you need to be doing. You were going off to school, Columbia. But what you quote is like a newspaper story about you doing this. Um, and there's not a scene in there where you two are actually having that conversation, at least not that I remember. I, I, I guess I was wondering if that was hard to write about or too difficult to try to confront in the book or whether it was just not worth discussing. There's no scene because, I mean, that's that's why I quote the newspaper article is after I left the band, we just kept talking, you know? We would talk about the next record coming out. You know, I mean, we are still close. We've maintained a great friendship. The complication was me still being in the band, really, with, you know, not wanting to still be in the band. And so, uh, in a way, it was sort of easier after the fact. But I don't even really remember exactly telling Mark that I was leaving the band. You know, I do remember talking in the weeks after about the next record that was coming out and I helped with the setup for it. You know, I mean, it wasn't like ripping a Band-Aid off. So you go to New York, you go to school, you start playing in some bands up there. And then what it feels like to me to be sort of a turning point in your life and career is this band called Falcon, which I had never heard of. And it's a pretty amazing story. Could you sort of describe what Falcon is, was, could have been all those sort of things. Falcon is my favorite band that I ever played in. And, you know, I mean, to back up a little bit, like in a way for me moving to New York was, yes, I moved to New York and I went to school at Columbia, but it was also, I've been hired to play with another band in New York that I was a fan of. And for me, like finding work in New York as a drummer, which I found a lot of work was really my greatest success as a drummer, because that was with acts that I'd looked up to and was like, striving to work with and so falcon the band you <laughs> mentioned was what we call a side band meaning like there was no label there was no aspiration it was guys from different bands you know that were quote unquote real bands that had gotten together to play some music for fun oh man i just love the songs we had so much fun and so we had our first show that had been booked and since I was the guy, everybody knew, you know, I would, I was the one reading the New Yorker between, you know, songs and rehearsal when the guys are tuning. So we booked our first show and the club needed a bio. And so they asked me to write the bio. And that was a thing I'd been doing in the city for work for a little while was writing these band bios for bands around town. You know, the one page described the band, what's cute about the songs, why it's the best work ever, this and that. And it, that form gets old real quick. And I'd already written a million of these things. And so for this side band Falcon, I decided I'd have some fun and just make a ridiculous story in the bio uh, that I thought everybody would think was hilarious because what did it matter? We weren't a real band and I sent the bio out and the band all thought it was fun. I'll put it on the website. And we quickly realized everybody else in the world <laughs> thought the story was true. <laughs> well, explain the story that you wrote. I will. The, the story was that we had formed to be basically the tribute band to a dead child songwriting prodigy named Jared Falcon. And that we had, that he had written a song a day throughout middle school and recorded each of these songs on an official price tape recorder. And he died from meningitis in eighth grade. And we'd found these tapes in a storage shed. Say the bird 
space and keep them from lighting themselves on fire. Now, to my mind, I thought down. this is clearly hilarious. And at our first show, this guy came up to me and he just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, uh, Nick, man, I just want I just want to tell you, I think what you guys are doing is is beautiful. And I said, well, what do you mean? You know, we hadn't even played yet. He hadn't heard us. And he said, not those songs, man, about that, about that kid. And I just realized, oh, my God, he thinks it's true. We find a way to tell him. You know, we were in the crowd. And, like, I also knew this guy was a martial arts instructor. I was a little scared of him. So I just walked away thinking, like, oh, man, I can't believe that guy thought it was true. And then it some the press started picking up on it and it became a, a, a strange situation. To the point where, where you get, people are interviewing you about this and, and uh, there, I guess there's a point where the New Yorker, the, the magazine you've been reading all this time, wants to talk to you about it and you have to kind of, kind of spill the beans, right? Oh yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, a couple of media outlets had written stuff about the story and, Still, we just thought it was funny. And, you know, as I mentioned, I had, I was obsessed with The New Yorker, always have been. And that's part of what got me interested in writing. And in particular, The Talk of the Town, which are the short pieces in the front of the magazine. I got a call in my apartment from a writer from The New Yorker who said, uh, hey, Nick, I, I, got, I got great news. And I said, oh, yeah, what is it? And he said, well, I just got greenlit from The New Yorker to write a Talk of the Town piece about your new band. And, you know, I was playing with a lot of groups at that time. I was a little confused. I said, Oh my God, this is amazing. What band? And he said, Falcon about that incredible story about that kid. And I remember I was standing in the doorframe, just putting my head against the doorframe and thinking like, this, <laughs> I can't believe this is happening. And so I, I said, uh, yeah, man, I said, that's a pretty, you know, unbelievable story, isn't it? He said, wait, what are you saying? I said, and saying it's a pretty unbelievable story. He said, wait, are you saying Jared Falcon isn't real? And I said, well, I'm just saying that's an incredible story. So he knew, but we still did the interview. It was it was a bit of a mess. You know, we did not set out to create <laughs> fake news. But, you know, what was interesting about that, it, for me, wasn't that strange adventure in creating fake news. It was that that, that bio really resonated with people, you know? And that was right at the time when I was trying to figure out how to write. And as I'm sure you know, you know, when you're a young writer figuring it out, it's all failure. And so the takeaway from less guilt about fooling people or like fear about getting in trouble with this false news story, more just like, I just did it. I wrote something that worked. What hole did writing fill that being a musician didn't? And I'm, and what things are kind of resonate between both of those? The hole that it filled for me was complete artistic control. <clears throat> as a musician, as a musician, I didn't long for that. I didn't want to be the um, front person. I'm not a songwriter, definitely not a singer. So it was the thrill of being able to pursue what I felt I was interested in artistically completely. That's That was the main thing writing was. The overlap when I first started writing, having success with writing, I said, there's no overlap. They're two complete different things. I, that is, I, I am com on the complete other end of that right now and sort of see them as the same thing 
in both just the the practice of coming to the art form every day. You know, I, I spoke earlier about stylistic um, identity as a drummer. For me, I see it in my writing, the rhythm of the sentences and um, my, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit minimal, a little bit streamlined. Uh, there's a lot of overlap there. Also, you know, it's hard to pursue art as a living. And um, man, did we get lucky when we were young. And it just, for me, opened up. It made me think like, oh, if I can be a musician and make a living out of that right out of high school, like, of course I can be a writer too. You know, it's like, what's next? Like pup puppetry or something, you know? Like, you know, how, like with artists, I feel like there's so many great artists who don't have success because they quit pursuing their art. And so one of the big takeaways for me is just the, the work that, music and writing takes and like just putting that work in does pay off you know it takes a long time but you know the those people who have success are the ones that stuck with it which is really what happened with music and with writing for me so it, the division is blurry in my mind it's um it's a little odd to me that you weren't a songwriter does is that just a completely different uh piece of your brain you think yes and it is it is super weird and i I try to write about this in the in the book. I have a hard time thinking about lyrics, and it's a thing that you know people. Some people will call lyric deafness, and uh, whether that's a thing or not. When I hear music, it just scrambles my brain, and it's like I know the words are there, but I'm only hearing the melody. And for me, the the lyrics of a song are so tied up with the delivery of the singer that I have a hard time as somebody who sings as poorly as anybody can sing imagining writing lyrics because of that and it always you know so much especially in music like rock where things are you know overdriven and that sort of thing it's so much about the sound of the voice rather than the words it's like rem when they started out nobody knew what michael stipe was singing even him a lot of times and but it didn't matter because you could hear the the feeling in his voice there is a larry scene in your book when you know, you're, you've got the headphones on and you're trying to remember the lyrics to your own band's old songs. And you realize you probably never knew them in the first place, right? That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, I decided I have to sit down and try to learn the words to these songs that I played, you know, literally thousands and thousands of times. It was hard for me. It's hard for me to, to hear the words of any song, really. But then the other part is, I really, I did know the words, you know, it was it, for, it was a type of translation. I knew where the breaths were. I knew what the sounds were. So quote unquote, learning the words was actually just sitting down and thinking like, what is Mark saying right now? I wonder how your tastes have evolved since that, you know, those times when it kind of evolved out of the, that kind of pop sound. Can you appreciate now like a really good, I don't know, Taylor Swift song or something like that? I mean, do you have it in you to appreciate that craft? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of that uh, pop music um, I didn't listen to for a long time. As I mentioned, I have a daughter. And so with her in my life, you know, all of a sudden pop radio uh, came back into the, you know, car. And I think really any serious musician is interested in production, <clears throat> performance, and uh, that's sort of across genre. And, 
yeah, man, I, I am wildly interested in all sorts of pop music, you know? You know, I talk to food critics and people like that. You know, sometimes I ask, can you go to a restaurant and just enjoy a piece of fried chicken, you know, and not, you know, think too much about it? Uh, when you listen to music now, can you just enjoy a good hook or whatever? Or is some part of your brain analyzing how it was arranged, you know, why the guitarist played that part, all that, you know, all the kind of insider music knowledge? Uh, I don't have a hard time listening to music. I have a hard time going to see musicians perform. I Sometimes I play a game with myself where I try to imagine any musician I would want to go to a show for. You know, and like, this is like, if the show's at night too, like, who would I want to stay up? You know, like, it's so complicated for me to go to a show. And this isn't just me. You know, I know so many musicians that, you know, it's a whole thing where, it, you know, because I'm not just thinking about performance, thinking about the gear. I'm thinking about where they're set up. I'm thinking about the sound check. I'm thinking, you know, thinking about who knows who. Probably I know some people in the room. It's just very complicated. But as far as listening to music, yeah, I am thinking about, performance and production and choice that makes listening better you know uh and that's something as a writing teacher now i talk about with my students you know learning how a story is written and being critical about seeing how a piece of art is put together doesn't mean that you're going to stop enjoying the art i mean for me it means it's going to give you the tools to keep finding more and more interesting things about art like as life goes on so in a way like that's that's the best part of listening to music for me for years have not played music really at all and i've started playing a little bit in that group falcon um those musicians have always stayed active and uh invited me out to to work on some new music with them which i did and it was great so i know as a t at the time that we're talking your book is not out yet and so you don't quite know yet how it's going to land out in the world this embarrassment that you used to feel over discussing all this obviously you've put it all now in this book do you feel like that's has been like cathartic for you in some way do you feel more comfortable with that time in your life now you know in a way writing the book is like having that conversation that i've always felt uncomfortable for but like you asking the question and then me spending like eight years writing the 200 word you know 200 page response and so like the book, I have obviously complete control over what I'm saying. I don't have a lot of skeletons from my past during that time that are uncovered in an uncomfortable way. I'm curious about how it's going to be received and how those people in the book are going to receive it. A lot of them I've shared it with already. Um, that's the big mystery to me. One last question. At the very beginning of the book, or close to it, you talk about how you have always tapped out rhythms on your teeth and to the point where, you know, it's required some dental work to take care of that. You kind of have this little thing where you're twitching in patterns and kind of songs in your head and stuff. Do you still do that? Oh yeah. I mean, all day long. I mean, it doesn't matter how much I play the drums. I'm always tapping my teeth. You know, it's a, uh, just, a, I'm always thinking about, um, a rhythm in my head you know i think when i was younger i was much more annoying with it because i'd be tapping on everything and that slowly just changed me tapping my teeth which sounds incredible inside of my head and yes i've tapped so much that i've opened up these holes and two molars one of which they spilled but another one just opened up i just can't stop and i, I really thought i was the only one who did the teeth tapping 
the writer Michael Azarad got in touch. He's a very celebrated music writer and he's Nirvana's biographer. And he read the book and uh, he was good friends with Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl. He said both of them tapped their teeth. And in fact, um, Dave Grohl writes about doing the same thing in his new memoir, which just came out. And uh, he, Azarad actually sent me a video clip of Kurt Cobain doing it too. You can see him doing it. So I don't know. I guess I'm in good company with the teeth tappers. It's the dream, right? I'm 59 years old. But as I was listening to Athenaeum before I talked to Nick Brown, I could see myself on the stage where he used to be, pounding on the drums. Or maybe out front playing guitar and singing to a crowd that knew all the words. There is nothing in the world with a condensed magic of a great three-minute pop song. And there are few things so seductive as the idea of living that life. But so many people, and not just musicians, come to find out that the dream they made real is not what they really wanted. They have to find a new dream. Sometimes that means closing the loops on the old one. That's what Nick Brown does in his memoir. He shows us what it was like and tells us why it was not quite enough. That's something you can probably understand if you've ever had any kind of relationship where it feels crazy to leave, but crazier to stay. That song we played at the very beginning, What I Didn't Know, it's about someone who broke off a relationship regrets it, and is waiting for the other person to come back around. That's not Nick Brown's story, really. But in a way, his book did let him come back around to the music that once meant so much to him and a lot of others. That's about as close to a happy ending as you get in rock and roll. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.